You are listening to the Krika Lecture Series podcast, produced by the Center for Russia, East Europe, and Central Asia at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. This and other Krika podcasts are available on SoundCloud and iTunes. For more information about Krika's lecture series and public events, visit our website at krika.wisc.edu. Welcome, everyone. It's good to see everyone. I can't believe it's uh, already into mid-November. Uh, my name is Ted Gerber, and I am the director of the Center for Russia, East Europe, and Central Asia at the University of Wisconsin. Uh, we are now uh, moving towards the towards the end, uh, final stretch of our fall 2020 Thursday lecture series. Uh, so now I'll turn things over to Catherine Henley who's the Roman Z. Lifshitz and William Voss Baskin Professor of Law and Political Science at UW-Madison, and she will introduce today's speaker. Well, thanks very much, Ted. It's a real pleasure to, to welcome Professor Vandervet. Um, he's actually doing double duty for us. He did a, a wonderful session in my undergraduate uh, uh, seminar um, on a different project. So that just shows how versatile he is. Um, and he also is coming to us from Finland, which for those of you who know your time zones, you'll realize that uh, it's not the afternoon for him. Uh, it, we're, we're really pleased that he was willing to stay up late for us. Uh, he's a, a socio-legal researcher. Uh, he did his undergraduate work at the University of Amsterdam and got his PhD at the University of Helsinki, um, where for many years he was working on uh, issues of the role of lawyers on, uh, under authoritarianism and uh, with issues of strategic litigation, uh, both domestically and in the uh, international or, or the European Court of Human Rights. Uh, he's published articles in uh, many of the leading um, uh, journals for this kind of work. He has an article forthcoming in Law and Social Inquiry. He published in Law and Society Review. Um, and then for, for the articles that he did about uh, some of the uh, European Court of Human Rights stuff, he's in all of the best uh, human rights uh, law journals. Um, he now is uh, the principal investigator for this research group on uh, toxic crimes. Uh, and I think we're all very envious of someone who's gotten this kind of funding and uh, especially funding where it allows him to be free of teaching, which is very nice. Um, and so he's the, the project is to explore how legal experts push for accountability for the destruction of the environment during armed conflict. Uh, so with that background, I'm going to turn it over to Professor Vandervet, um, and we all look forward to hearing what you have to tell us. Yes, thank you very much, uh, Catherine, for introducing me and for inviting me to speak here. Um, I'll just open my slides for Sheridan. So I guess you can all see them now. Yeah. Yeah, so thank you very much uh, for introducing me once again uh, and for inviting me. Um, yeah, I'm very happy to talk today about uh, our new project, the Toxic Crimes Project, which looks at uh, legal activism against environmental destruction, not only in Ukraine, but in, in various other uh, conflicts. Um, so this is a project that will last until 2022, and it involves uh, well, me and two other postdocs and a research assistant. Um, so broadly, broadly speaking, in the project, we look at uh, how various stakeholders, like experts, lawyers, NGO activists, um, 
seek protection for the environment during during armed conflict and also try to expand uh, the existing legal norms on um, on environmental protection during conflict. So what I'm going to do today in this in this talk is speak a bit about the project itself and the various issues that uh, come forward during uh, when we talk about armed conflict and the environment. And then uh, the second part of the, the, the presentation, I'll look a bit deeper into one case study that I'm looking at, and that's um, environment, environmental monitoring in uh, the conflict in Eastern Ukraine in Donbass. And in particular, like the politicized nature of the practice of environmental monitoring during an ongoing conflict. So first, broadly speaking, uh, when we look at conflicts or conflict, we usually don't really think as the environment as a victim. In 2014, the United Nations Secretary General Ban Ki-moon said that the environment is often a silent victim of war. So although there's a lot of um, general, of course, attention to climate change and environmental destruction as, as, a, as a result of climate change, uh, we actually know less of how lawyers, experts, uh, and activists promote the idea of the environment as a victim of, of, of armed conflicts. So, um, so that's what this project will, will look at. And in the project, we have three broad um, focuses. Okay. Um, so the first aim of the project is to make a comparison between various um, conflicts and environmental protection on the ground in those conflicts. So we mainly rely on interviews, same structured interviews with, with these activists and lawyers working in concrete conflict zones. And at the moment, um, yeah, I'm looking at the conflict in Eastern Ukraine. Uh, my colleague um, will look at the NATO bombings in uh, former Yugoslavia and possibly at Syria. And maybe we'll have other cases as well. Um, because we're currently looking for a new uh, postdoc. So uh, this postdoc will look at, uh, at their own case. So beside that, a kind of groundwork, looking at the groundwork of, um, of uh, environmental protection during armed conflict, we look at the broader <clears throat> international legal activism, and particularly the international campaign uh, for accountability um, for wartime environmental destruction at various intergovernmental institutions like the International Criminal Court. So how activists and lawyers worked on uh, promoting the, uh, um, uh, the idea of a new international crime or crimes against the earth, crimes against the environment, uh, ecocide. And um, at another, at the UN, uh, particularly at a um, currently ongoing process of the International Law Commission, um, which is currently codifying, codifying all the existing uh, international law on protection of the environment during conflicts. And the third focus is more, well, maybe more critical legal or philosophical in the sense that we're going to look at um, the role of uh, expertise uh, and how these lawyers look at, um, try to expand the idea of the environment as a victim uh, with rights separate from human beings and their own human right to enjoy a clean environment. So 
so yeah, we look at how these these various actors, stakeholders, uh, kind of produce and merge uh, various emerging fields of both technical um, and scientific <clears throat> knowledge they use in, in environmental monitoring and uh, the legal expertise in, in, in the kind of aim to articulate uh, environmental harm during armed conflicts. So what, what are we actually talking about when we talk about uh, environmental damage uh, during armed conflict? So broadly speaking, uh, we can identify three different forms of environmental damage. First, the direct one, uh, indirect, and more kind of circumstantial. Um, so the first well-known well example of a direct destruction um, of the environment is um, when armies use uh, um, various herbicides as a strategy of war. So a well-known example is um, US Army's use of, of Agent Orange during the Vietnam War uh, in its chemical warfare program, Operation Ranch Hand. And um, this herbicide, Agent Orange, destroyed large patches of forests and crops, uh, basically depriving the Viet Cong guerrillas, Viet Cong guerrillas of, um, from food and concealment. Um, so while this, this herbicide destroyed large patches of forest, is also, the herbicide also contains traces of a dioxin, uh, TCDD, which can enter uh, the human body and affect gene expression. Um, so Vietnam reports that over 400,000 people have suffered to death or permanent injury from exposure to Agent Orange. Um, and furthermore, they estimate that around 2 million people have suffered from various illnesses caused by exposure and that half a million babies were born with various birth defects, uh, also due to exposure um, uh, to Agent Orange. So that's one, um, one example of uh, direct um, destruction of the environment when, the army, when an army really uses um, uh, destruction as a strategy of warfare. Um, yeah, it's worth noting that, um, well, U.S. veterans have, have been compensated for their exposure um, after they filed a lawsuit in 1979. Vietnamese people's efforts to secure similar compensation in 2004 uh, failed. And Monsanto, the company that uh, manufactured Agent Orange, denies that uh, the herbicide has any bad health, health effects. So another, um, well, maybe it's not a, it's not a direct um, use of environmental destruction as a strategy of war, but one another example is um, when the burning of oil wells uh, outside Kuwait City, when the Iraqi troops uh, withdrew uh, from Kuwait uh, at the end of the Persian Gulf War in 1991, they set fire to hundreds of oil wells. Um, but the health effects uh, were apparently much less uh, significant, significant than expected. So a case we will be talking about a bit later during this um, presentation is the case of Eastern Ukraine. Eastern Ukraine had mostly direct and circumstantial or um, contextual uh, damage to the environment. So <clears throat> here the, the various uh, fighting parties did not use destruction of the environment as a strategy of warfare uh, but um, there has a lot been a lot of indirect damage in the sense that the fighting has 
and disrupted most of the, uh, the, the heavy industries in, in Eastern Ukraine, uh, which resulted into uh, various leaks or mines that flooded uh, um, and the flooding led to uh, uh, water pollution. So that's a kind of indirect consequence of war. Um, and then the more circumstantial that uh, that the more uh, that the conflict in East Ukraine um, led to a collapse of environmental governance in the region and um, collapse of uh, waste waste disposal programs, uh, toxic waste disposal programs, etc. So that also led to environmental pollution. But we'll go a bit deeper into that um, later. So all um, conflicts leave, 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 leave remnants and all conflicts effectively destroy the environment in some way. Um, but uh, one particular <clears throat> effect is that, um, that all conflicts leave toxic remnants and toxic remnants can be defined as a toxic radiological substance resulting from military activities uh, that forms a hazard to human and ecosystems. So in a way, uh, the consequences of this environmental destruction during armed conflict uh, is, a, in a way, a form of slow violence, as Nixon has said. Um, so it can lead to deforestation, the introduction of new pollutants in the, in the environment, uh, various illnesses, uh, including cancer, uh, birth defects, miscarriages, like what happened during the Vietnam um, conflict, uh, resource depletion, um, studies have made a link with uh, wildlife decline, but also more indirectly <clears throat> can lead to, to pillage and poaching or uh, illegal hunting. Um, so if we look at um, the existing international law uh, protections that are in place that, uh, that the people usually look at, like the NGOs we interview are quite quite critical and it's, it's quite well known that the international human rights law is um, you know, the provisions that it has for environmental protection and conflict that they need clarifying and strengthening and that they are uh, at the moment um, not really able to, to address um, environmental uh, or protect environment during, during armed conflict. Um, much of it is because uh, it has a very high threshold um, for parties to prove that, that environmental destruction has been widespread, long-lasting and severe. Uh, international humanitarian law only looks at interstate conflict, um, international conflicts and not at, well, most conflicts nowadays are intrastate, so within states, and they often ignore, uh, and international humanitarian law ignores non-state actors. Um, um, NGOs are more positive about international uh, environmental law uh, because it looks at the whole conflict cycle, not only at conflict stage. And human, human rights law um, could be valuable to kind of clarify for us various forms of victim assistance. And in, human rights law doesn't really care about what kind of conflict, conflict we're talking about, uh, interstate or in, international conflict, it doesn't really matter. So, um, yeah, just one, um, uh, one, uh, one treaty that specifically addressed uh, 
environmental destruction was the UN Convention on, on the Prohibition of Military or any other hostile use of environmental modification techniques convention or the NMOD convention, which is a result of the Vietnam War and the US Army's use of, of Agent Orange, but also the use of weather control. Um, and again, um, this, this convention was also has a very high threshold to prove um, that uh, what would constitute uh, as unacceptable damage, they were set too high. Um, so it also says that the environmental damage should be severe, uh, or uh, long-lasting severe and widespread. Um, and uh, that's why the AMOT uh, never really was invoked uh, after, uh, after it has been ratified and passed. So one kind of, kind of overlapping problem is when we look at, at these is that this body of international law and how it would work in practice is that we also look at um, in, 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 in armed conflict or in war situations, we often are more concerned about uh, the, the fate of innocent victims or civilians. So uh, Stone said that it is realistic to expect the military to be more constrained on behalf of the environment than on behalf of other innocent victims of war, such as civilians. So um, for other problems is that our, our, um, uh, when we look at these laws or at uh, environmental destruction and armed conflict in particular, is that um, they're very human centric. And we look at, we often don't prioritize the environment in general. Um, so we would prioritize human um, suffering over environmental concerns. Well, what I just said at the threshold for, for these um, international laws is very high, so they will likely uh, never really apply. Um, we often have difficulties looking at the environment as uh, beyond um, uh, beyond resources or beyond the use for profit. Um, and then when we look at victims, it's very often very difficult to um, to identify for victims and for lawyers the, the specific source of. Um, for example, when somebody gets ill, uh, it's very difficult to identify whether or not that has been because of the introduction of a new pollutant. And often also delays in illnesses, so people don't get sick immediately, but they get sick after 10 or 20 years, they get cancer. So it's very difficult to make the connection between uh, toxic remnants and pollution during conflict and actual illnesses. So there have been several NGOs uh, working on this, these issues, and one of the major networks that existed until 2018 was the Toxic Remnants of War Network, which was a cluster of uh, six organizations. Um, and they really tried to advocate um, for uh, more attention for the status of the environment during, during armed conflict. In 2018, um, they changed to the Conflict and Environmental Observatory, CEOPS. And uh, all the other organizations, some of the organizations in the network, they just dispersed. So it's not really an active network anymore, but CEOPS is now a kind of singular NGO advocacy organization. Um, so one of their representatives uh, articulates that, um, or says that um, 
one of the main problems they see is that trying to articulate environmental harms and get the United Nations General Assembly to understand harms from radioactive or chemically toxic weapons was quite a challenge. Um, and it was easier to, to build an advocacy framework around landmines because, well, you have a, well, you can say with landmines that you have a specific casualty there and somebody dead there. And it's a bit more difficult when you're dealing with environmental contaminants where the harm might be a percentage increase, risk increase in cancer over a 10, 20 year period. So to provide a sense of urgency is quite difficult. So it's not being, so I don't wanna, so there is a, a kind of increasing attention for the environment um, during, um, during armed conflicts. Um, the ICC um, in the Rome Statute uh, 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 notes that environmental destruction can be seen as, um, as an international crime as, as long as it's severe and uh, widespread. Um, and in, in 2016, the, uh, the ICC said, um, published a policy paper on case selection and prioritization, promising to prioritize uh, environmental damage, exploitation, and dispossession. And the current, um, there's a current ongoing uh, uh, process at the UN International Law Commission, uh, which published um, or read, or passed 28 new legal principles on the protection of the environment, the so-called PARC principles. Um, the International Law, UN International Law Commission is a, is a body of, uh, of, of international law experts and their main, one of their tasks is to codify and to, to bring together um, various uh, bodies of international law and to, to produce new, new principles. So this is a process that will continue on until 2021. Um, and CEOPS and the Toxic Remnants Network that I just mentioned, I've also been involved in pushing this, this forward to get a more coherent uh, body of, of, of law and principles um, and norms on, um, on environmental protection during armed conflict. And just in September, uh, this September, the Red International Committee of the Red Cross passed a, a new updated version of their 1994 uh, military guidelines uh, which is basically uh, the guidelines for training military on environmental protection, uh, but also, um, yeah, it includes recommendations of how armies can reduce environmental impacts, and how they can identify and designate areas of environmental importance or fragility as demilitarized zones. So there is a growing attention and urgency for this particular topic. So yeah, one of the cases in this project that I'm looking at personally is environmental destruction in Eastern Ukraine. Um, yeah, so most of my work in the past has, been, has dealt with uh, Georgia and Russia um, and human rights defense there. So the conflict in Eastern Ukraine is relatively new to me. Uh, so any comments or questions on that, um, I'd be happy to any comments that we're happy to, to get on this. Um, so yeah, this is one of the, 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 the cases that I look at. Uh, I'm interviewing currently um, Ukrainian NGOs, several international NGOs that have been working on the conflicts and especially environmental issues. 
people working or have been working at the OSCE, the UN, several independent experts, industrial experts, and investigative journalists. I see somebody raised their hand. Do you just want me to continue? Uh, it's up to you. If you'd like to take uh, the question now, or we could wait to the end. What, what is your preference? Um, well, if it's something to clarify, then yeah. But uh, yeah, otherwise, I... okay. Well, sure, uh, Michael. You want to go ahead and uh, turn on your video and ask your question, then? Yeah, sure. Uh, it's not really a clarification, but I wanted to bring up the question of non-military uh, bodies that might be engaged in environmental warfare. Yeah. Specifically, I was thinking that uh, the CIA was supposedly uh, using uh, using dropping pesticides or um, herbicides over Cuba in the 1960s and the 1970s in an effort to uh, uh, cause trouble for agricultural production in mm. Cuba. So I'm, I'm just saying there's an example where uh, intelligence yeah. agencies can also um, create problems for the environment. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. Thank you for your question, for your uh, comments. Uh, yes, no, absolutely. Um, yeah, that is, that is important. Um, I don't know if we look, we will look at, um, at that specifically, but um, yeah, that's important to keep in mind. There are always various actors um, involved and there's definitely a problem of non-state actors that have been destroying the environment um, as well. And that as non-state actors uh, uh, have not really been, um, yeah, they're difficult to regulate, let's say like that. Um, so um, yeah, so I'm currently in the process of interviewing um, this list of, um, of stakeholders. Um, so at the moment I'm still in the beginning stages, I would have to say. Um, but yeah, yeah, briefly speaking, like the conflict in Eastern Ukraine started in 2014. At the moment, there are um, um, over 10,000 casualties, and the last ceasefire um, was in uh, July uh, 27th, uh, 2020. Um, the problem of um, of this conflict, especially when we talk about the environment, is that the conflict happens in a very dense uh, industrial um, zone, Eastern Ukraine. Um, this is a, just a picture from a, from a, a NGO report, so Environment Network um, on, on, uh, on, on Eastern Ukraine before the conflict, um, describing all the various issues of pollution uh, that these industries cause. So uh, the OSCE has, um, has labeled Eastern Ukraine as Europe's most significant man-made environmental burden because of the presence of heavy industry. So uh, the Donbass region um, is one of Europe's most heavily industrialized areas. Um, the OECD estimates that uh, Donetsk and Luhansk Oblast uh, in, in Donbass are, is home to around um, 4,500 polluting industrial sites, including uh, um, industries for metallurgy, uh, chemo various chemical plants, and, uh, and coal mines. And many of these 
uh, industries are very close to the contact line, uh, so the contact line between the Ukrainian armed forces and the separatist forces. Um, European, the Environment People Law uh, Group, which is a public interest environmental law organization based in Kiev, has, uh, also uh, says that there have always been problems of general and toxic waste disposal because of a lack of facilities in the region. Uh, this is also a region that has been um, very vulnerable to wildfire, wildfires, especially during the summer. Um, yeah, and most of these yeah, what I already mentioned, most of these heavy industries are very close to the front line. So this is really an area with a lot of pre-existing uh, pollution and, and uh, environmental problems to begin with. Um, so I just want to show you this picture again, where you can see all, well, this, this is an old picture from 2015. So just yeah, right after the beginning of the conflict, where you can see all the, uh, the little factories are the kind of disrupted, um, um, the factories and industries that were disrupted <clears throat> by uh, by the conflict, uh, various forest fires, um, water supply disruptions, etc. So yeah, very close to the to the contact line. So when we look at this environmental destruction, we can broadly divide the causes of environmental damage in three categories. Um, damage due to shelling or um, or the fighting, um, disruption of industries, and a general collapse of the environmental governance in in the region. Um, sorry, I just have to move my yeah. Um, so the first, the shelling and the forced shelling and the fighting. So. Often when we when we think about warfare in general and industries, heavy industries are often, of course, an, a strategic military target during armed conflict, either because they are producing some ammunition or other valuable resources. But the OSCE finds that besides some cases like fighting around the Donetsk airports and some coal mining infrastructure uh, near Kirillov, um, uh, that a sustained strategic targeting of the industry uh, did not seem to have occurred during the conflict. Um, and also the United Nations Office for the Coordination of Humanitarian Affairs on the line said, well, the area is very dense with hazardous industry, kind of sustained and targeted assault has been absent from the conflict. So this, of course, doesn't mean that, uh, that the fighting um, and direct damage to industries did not harm the environment, but like a sustained strategy has been absent. Um, so, yeah, a couple of examples of um, is the, for example, the, the shelling of the Aftivka of the um, coke and chemical plants, which is Europe's largest coke plants operational since the 1960s, which stopped working in 2014, right after the fighting started. Um, Truthhounds, a Ukrainian NGO working on the conflict, found that it was uh, shelled by around 330 times, or 330 shells has hit the chemical plants in 2015, uh, from 2015 onwards. Um, and this shelling has resulted in a release of, of benzoyl and coke gas, uh, which has high concentrations of benzene and ammonia and other harmful substances. 
And then you have the shelling of the Donetsk water filtration uh, uh, system um, site, which potentially released uh, large amounts of chlorine in the groundwater. Uh, but all NGO reports and all the people we interviewed so far uh, say that the disruption of, of these industries, these already polluting industries, was uh, contributed to most of the environmental damage. Uh, so that, that has been the major cause of conflict pollution. So between 2014 and 2017, there have been over 500 disruptions of uh, industrial um, manufacturing or, uh, or these coal mines. So disruption, when we think about disruptions, we can think about breaks in the supply chain, which forced some power plants to switch to lower, lower grade coal, which polluted the environment further. Um, problems with toxic waste disposal, uh, power outages, and in general abandonments of, uh, of industrial sites because people couldn't work there anymore. Um, one, one example is the Sasyatka coal mine, which is the world's most dangerous mine, or one of the world's most dangerous mines, um, which had several lethal accidents over, over, over the years. Um, but disruptions in electricity supply of this mine caused the ventilation system and water pumps to fail, uh, which resulted in flooding of the mine and the flooding can, besides damaging the mine itself, can also result in polluted groundwater. Um, but after they kind of switched on the ventilation and the pumping again, uh, in the kind of accumulated gases in the mine were also released uh, in the environment. So these are kind of examples of more kind of indirect uh, consequences of uh, conflict on the environment. Um, Yeah, so um, one of the people we interviewed basically confirmed that one of the main risks that they see at the moment is contaminated uh, groundwater. And that's something that we'd like to focus on in the future, uh, especially the mine waters that are, um, um, that can be polluted and end up in the groundwater. Uh, the third and final um, category of environmental damage we can see is um, the collapse of environmental governments, governance or the uh, environmental monitoring that, that existed before the conflict. So some of the NGOs and the activists, we, or the experts we interviewed, um, they were relatively positive about the existing or the pre-existing environmental monitoring in the, in, in the region and many of the, the industrial sites had their own ecological departments. Uh, but of course, the conflict disrupted most of that oversight. Um, some of the monitoring stations that are beyond the contact line and the occupied zone, um, they are not operating anymore and Ukraine inside does not have, con uh, cannot access those monitoring stations anymore. Um, the National Reserve Fund was shut down. There's a general lack of maintenance of industrial sites um, and NGOs and can generally not access beyond the contact line. Um, and then a final um, 
final result is that most of the that 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 environmental destruction order, the collapse of the of environmental governments and oversight has led to poaching and illegal hunting in the in the area. So yeah, all normal environmental activities were disrupted, and the same regarding nature conservation. Forest areas are now split, so it's impossible to maintain a certain kind of integrity. And both sides have to manage it independently. So there's no coherence anymore. Um, so for the remaining uh, part of this uh, talk, I would like to focus on um, actual practice of environmental monitoring and the various problems uh, NGOs and experts uh, face. Um, one, one problem I want to highlight here is um, um, the, the kind of politicized nature of environmental monitoring and how, um, how environmental data has been contested both between NGOs and organizations, but also how they face uh, environmental disinformation from, um, from, from both sides. Um, yeah, so they have difficulties in measuring and estimating the range of potential damages um, with also working with limited, limited funding. So one of the methods that um, that NGOs uh, use is a remote sensing. Uh, they use satellite images uh, and sometimes declassified US spy images to see how um, certain zones have been contaminated. For example, this is a picture of a relatively recent report. Uh, which shows a contaminated reservoir, and they use several, uh, well, basically they use Google Earth and other open access um, 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 platforms uh, to get access to the satellite images, and, um, and they, they, they always see always works on the ground to uh, get water samples, etc. Yeah, but these NGOs are also very critical of the use of these satellite images in the sense that, um, yeah, there's some stuff which you can pick up remotely, uh, which is very hard for people to question, but you don't necessarily have the actual physical samples on the grounds of, say, a pollutant. So, yeah, um, people might have access to, the, um, to satellite images and they might see what happens on the on the, beyond the contact line, but I cannot access beyond the contact line to collect pollutants. Not a problem with uh, satellite images is that if you have cloud cover, you basically have no data. Um, some of the pollution is invisible to satellite images. Um, and you can't really say who's responsible for pollution if you only look at satellite images. So uh, one informant says that you need to be really on the ground as soon as you start talking about uh, causality of who did what and who was active and we, who was responsible. Yeah, so one of the main major contestations, especially in the beginning of the conflict, was whether the environment that environmental damage was caused by actually the fighting or just by the disruption. And this was a, a discussion between NGOs. Um, 
So one NGO reported that the prevailing media narrative in Ukraine over environmental damage from the conflict has sought to link it directly to the fighting. But information currently available is quite too fragmented to fully confirm the extent of the relationship. So such kind of simplifications can also mask the indirect effects of warfare and environmental quality. So one, one informant said that um, this might just underlining only that the fighting caused environmental damage uh, is also dangerous because um, they didn't find, sorry, that the OEC, when the OEC did field research in 2017, uh, they said one thing they found out that the impact of hostilities on chemical pollution is actually very low, apart from a few cases, and on average is basically zero. It doesn't exist. Whereas some of the NGOs were really trying, crying out at that time that the area is badly polluted because of the combat. This was not only because of the combat, and one of the reasons is that the Donbass was already proved before. So that also make so these kind of things are just too dangerous because they basically trust in people and environmental data, environmental monitoring. So we should be very careful to not to lead, not to raise false alarms. So in general, this also has been a problem for, for many NGOs trying to monitoring, trying to monitor the area that it's very well, it, it has been challenging to, to, to distinguish between pre-existing pollution and, um, and new pollution due to the fighting and the conflict. Um, yeah, so finally, a, um, these NGOs um, also fear, face the weaponization of environmental information. Uh, one example is uh, in 2018, um, a group of hackers uh, released so-called, well, false leaked documents uh, that uh, detailed that the U.S. Secret Services uh, dumped nuclear waste in uh, in the Siversky Donets uh, Donets uh, River. Um, of course, these documents were, were false and it was kind of a fake news story. Uh, but they, the documents claimed that the saboteurs planned to contaminate this river. Um, 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 and um, also blamed that um, several NGOs um, and um, uh, more to blame for uh, for not monitoring this situation very closely. Um, but this also happened, so they're, they're basically claiming that, that the US would release this uh, nuclear waste or this radioactive material uh, falsely, um, but this happened during the time when um, the separatist forces also threatened to flood a certain mine, which was a mine um, that was um, the Yunkom mine that um, that um, uh, in which uh, the Soviet well in times of the Soviet Union um, uh, the mine was used uh, well in the mine there was a, a, a nuclear explosion um, so the the the, separ the separatists threatened to flood the mine which would kind of 
run the risk of um, bringing this radioactive material um, to uh, to the surface and to the groundwater. Um, they did flood the mine and um, they stopped. Uh, so this radioactive material might 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 have leaked into the groundwater. So um, the release of this kind of fake news and to kind of shifting the blame to the U.S. Secret Services or the international NGOs might have just been a strategy to kind of uh, shift the blame um, and to kind of preemptively uh, shift the blame in case something bad might have happened after flooding flooding this particular mine with radioactive material. But yeah, just in general, one of the people that say that they, there's a continuous that the de facto authorities continuously claim that Ukraine is also damaging the Donbass environment. So there's continuous back and forth between between the between the two sides and who is who is to blame for damaging the environment. Um, yeah, this informant also said that the de facto authorities also wanted to set up a mixed group with international accepted internationally accepted organizations, NGOs. Um, then they uh, invited them to go across the line of contact and inspect how well the environment is protected on the Ukrainian side. Of course, this informant says that it's clear propaganda and everybody understands it would never happen, but these kinds of things are used all the time. So just to conclude, um, yeah, just a couple of points that was, I, I hope I've made during this, this presentation. Um, yeah, that environmental damages are difficult to estimate or assess in the long run, uh, connection between illnesses and um, and the introduction of new pollutants are difficult to assess. And I think that's also a problem that NGOs in Eastern Ukraine are facing today, that they have difficulties um, assessing what the effects will be of polluted groundwater in the very long run. So that also makes it difficult to keep this, this, this issue urgent. Uh, environmental data is prone to disinformation and all kinds of disagreements on what is actually considered to be a risk. Um, uh, a risk of uh, environment, an environmental risk. Um, both NGOs with, among themselves disagree on which environmental data um, um, uh, is, is useful or should, should get more attention, but also uh, environmental data, data is also used by, by both fighting uh, sites, especially in the Eastern Ukraine context. So thank you very much for your attention. And if you have any questions, please raise your hand, I guess. Thank you. Well, yes, thank you very much uh, for a very informative uh, presentation. Lots of information, rather, uh, none of it very cheerful. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, and we also really appreciate your willingness to uh, speak to us. So, so uh, we should have pointed out that uh, uh, Freak is uh, located in Helsinki, Finland, where it's now uh, well after midnight. So uh, yeah, thanks no, a lot I'm for fine. seeing a play. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I will uh, open the floor to questions. I'll, I'll actually start off with my own uh, question. Okay. I'll, I'll abuse my position as uh, the moderator. Um, so listening to you, you speak, um, I found myself wondering, uh, so who are, are the, is the key audience for this monitoring? That is, like if you're thinking about a strategy that might actually 
uh, address some of these potential problems and actual problems as you cataloged. Uh, who is it that uh, you hope will take some action? I mean, is there any, are there, you know, is it the Ukrainian government? Is it the, the government of the non-federally controlled territories? Uh, is it the international community? Uh, who are the important stakeholders that actually are in a position that might uh, to, to actually affect some uh, improvement of, uh, or to address these problems? Uh, yeah, thank you very much for your question. Um, yeah, so, well, I think in basically these NGOs target the international community at large. I mean, NGOs working in Ukraine that, that do environmental monitoring. Um, yeah, so most of these NGOs work closely together with with OSCE, that is very active in, the, in Eastern Ukraine, and does most of the environmental monitoring. Mm. Um, but yeah, in general, I think most people we talk to is that the conflict in East Ukraine is well has dealt from maybe from the beginning, even from very limited international attention, and that has been dwindling over the years. And most of the people we interviewed, or I interviewed, said that well, it's, it's there's no international attention at the moment. So. Yeah, I think um, part of it is uh, just they, they're just trying to collect data on 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 on, on, environment, on contamination of, of, of groundwater uh, through the OSCE. Some of these NGOs also report to the International Criminal Courts where they submit reports. So yeah, I would say the target is mostly international inter intergovernmental organizations like the International Criminal Court and the OSCE. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thanks. Great, thanks. Um, okay, uh, I recognize Professor Yoshiko Herrera. Hi, um, thanks very much. Um, yeah, this is a really fascinating presentation. Um, and so thank, thank you for doing the work and thanks for sharing it with us. Um, I, I was wondering whether there was an approach that was following um, sort of regulation of firms because when I first started listening, um, you know, the, the issue of the environment having standing, um, you know, sounds a little bit radical, if you, excuse me, sounds a little bit radical, but when you think yeah. of, um, when you think of it in terms of environmental costs being assessed to firms for their damage, and then why not treat militaries like firms mm. and um, something like that, it sounds like, oh, well, we're already doing that. So. I guess I'm just wondering if there's an effort with international law to be uh, maybe modeling that kind of environmental um, damage mm. uh, that's already existing for corporations or something um, towards militaries or states. Uh, yes, there are. There, the International Law Commission has has something. I, sorry, I can't really um, specify it much further, but they do address uh, corporates responsibility for environmental damage and armed conflict. So that is death, the principle on that. Um, yeah, it is, it is radical, but then again, I mean, enterprises have legal standing as well. Um, um, so yeah, it might, it might happen uh, that the environment will get, get legal standing at some point. I mean, of course, uh, this has already happened in, in, in New Zealand when some rivers have gotten legal standards, uh, standing, sorry. Um, 
before court. So yeah, I'm not an expert in, in corporate liability or corporate uh, responsibility. Um, but it is this is a topic that is going to be addressed by the International Law Commission. Thank you very much. Could, could I could you elaborate a little bit on the New Ze the rivers having legal standing in New Zealand? That's a very interesting idea that I've never heard before, and maybe others okay. also. Um, yeah, it, have, it has happened in several several countries. Like it's an idea of guardianship. So. Um, in New Zealand, uh, there was a river that got got in standing uh, before the court and, um, through a guardian or an appointed guardian. So there would be a, um, I think this guardian was uh, from a local indigenous um, community. Um, so yeah, it's basically based on the idea of guardianship that that certain parts of nature would would get assigned a guardian, and. Um, the only there are, there are several other cases like that, but this is the major. This is it was I think the one of the first cases like that. Yeah, mm. very interesting. Yeah, it is interesting. Yeah. yeah. Okay, uh, Jeff Kahn, your hand is up, please. Thank you uh, very much for this interesting uh, talk, and I wanted to ask a question that follows up on something that Ted had asked. Uh, but with the caveat that, of course, when you're looking towards remedies to direct your, your research towards some sort of remedy, remedies are not necessarily mutually exclusive. And you could go to multiple uh, resources at the same time. On the other hand, some sort of prioritization might be useful. So I just wonder whether you think at this stage in your research that legal remedies might be where you ought to prioritize and target your efforts, in which case you are looking at the ILC and you're looking at the Red Cross and you're looking uh, maybe for training uh, in, uh, in uh, military circles on legal obligations of the sort that principles like proportionality and necessity and humanity would, would connect with. But given what you said about uh, disinformation, about the difficulty of gathering information, yeah. about the difficulties you might experience with regard to jurisdiction and chains of evidence and all the like, I wonder if an alternative is just to uh, focus on political remedies, in which mm -hmm. case you are, you are aiming maybe to uh, accomplish a new treaty like, um, like the campaign to abolish nuclear weapons. Um, and they've had a fair amount of success, or if you are focused on political remedies uh, regionally or nationally with, with non-governmental stakeholders that nevertheless might be influential, where do you see the priority as best being placed? Uh, legal institutions and remedies or political ones? And thank you again for your, for your excellent presentation. Thank you very much. Um, you mean the priority of, of this, this research project, the priority of the of the, the priority that the NGOs um, have? Oh well, if you could address both, that okay. would that'd be excellent. Um, well, most of these NGOs they focus 
or the like CEOs and the toxic remnants of war network, they really looked at the le developing legal remedies uh, by pushing forward the, the idea at the International Law Commission to, to draft these, these, these new principles. So I wouldn't say that this, that this, this pro process has been kind of only pushed by NGOs, but some NGOs have been involved in the in the in this process. Um, so that will not be. I mean, the end result of the ILC will not be a new treaty. Of course, it will just be a list of principles that are non-binding, but codify a kind of fragmented body of law, international law. Um, yeah, political remedies. Um, I think in general, it is it's just extremely difficult to find any remedies for environmental destruction. Not how, even if you t if you look at the victims, um, uh, I think in very few cases victims have gotten a political remedy or financial remedy um, or a legal remedy. Um, like one case would be U.S. veterans who got well a legal remedy and uh, in the end financial remedy after being exposed to Agent Orange. Um, but yeah, there, there, I don't think there, there are many um, mechanisms in place for people, individuals, or the environment in general to get remedies at the moment. But yeah, thank you. This, yeah, thank you. Okay, I know uh, Kathy Henley has a question. So, Kathy? Thanks, and I wanted to join the others in uh, thanking you for this wonderful presentation. Um, sort of a real turn in from your old other work, right? I was yeah. thinking there was going to be more focus on the lawyers here. Um, I guess yeah. you know one comment. I'm a little bit uh, uh, surprised by your referencing uh, Agent Orange almost as a model case. Agent Orange was a nightmare case. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it took yeah. forever and ever and ever. And as you point out, the chemical companies never did acknowledge that they were at fault there. Right. So um, I'm not sure that that how well that works. Um, I wanted to suggest another idea, kind of building on what Jeff had suggested about uh, political remedies. I mean, what about shame? You know, that when you think about the, the yeah. sociology of law literature on mobilization of rights, you know, one of the things they talk about is that, you know, you shouldn't always be gearing towards going to court, that there are lots of other ways that you can mm. um, seek remedies and, you know, mm. apologies or, or shame or things like that. Or when you talk to your um, respondents, uh, is, is this something that they're interested in or is that too low stakes for them and they want to play for higher stakes? Yeah, thank you very much. Yeah, shame. Um, yeah, for some NGOs, shaming is, of course, um, an important uh, well, form of remedy, I guess. Um, like especially CEOs, um, they when when we talk when we talk about when we talk with with these kind of actors that are active on the international level uh, as advocacy organizations, that they are interested in shaming states in damaging the environment. Um, not, I don't, not, not so much, um, when you look at the, uh, Ukrainian NGOs, they are really focused on data collection. 
and um, public health um, issues, and not so much on shaming either the Ukrainian or the, but the obvious, because most of the, the environmental damage is, has been the disruption and, um, and it has not really been the fighting. Um, and then your, your comment on Agent Orange, yeah, no, it's been a horrible case. It, I, I did not mean to, to, to present as a model case at all. I just, um, it, it's just one of these cases that are very well known. Um, and as I'm speaking to a US audience now, um, yeah. Have you been following this? Have you been following this litigation in the United States where there's this group of kids that are trying to sue uh, to force the government into uh, having a better environmental policy? Have you have you no, touched no on that? Way. Yeah, I'll send you some of that because it's oh, a right. yeah. it goes to your it goes to your issue about standing. And they 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 got managed to get through some of the lower courts, but I think they were shut down then by mm. a, by a circuit court. But you know, it's kind of the idea, kind of a, a Greta idea, right? That you know you grown-ups you're destroying the the um the environment mm. and and somehow you know we kids we but they found a an, a group of ngo lawyers that were willing to help them with it uh, okay. so that might be a nice um you know not a full case study but at least a good comparative case um yeah, okay. uh, uh for you and then i had one last question and i you know unlike jeff i'm not uh and you i'm not as uh, good on international law but a lot of what you're talking to me sounds like you know you're putting in these whether they're informal norms or binding or whatever that they're mm. well after any of this activity has taken place is there no kind of concern about ex post facto you know making the rules after the behavior has already taken place is that or is that just the norm in in when you deal with this kind of stuff um i guess it's the norm I yeah. don't know. I, mean, I guess it's the norm. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. But you see the kind of legal problem there, right? That typically we think that you should know what, you know, if you're if you're if you're choosing to do, well, if you're if you're going to pollute the environment, then you know that you're violating, uh, you know, six or ten regulations, right? Um, and that we would be uncomfortable going after you if we create the regulations after you've already done the the damage, usually, right? Yeah. So. Yeah. 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 Okay. Yeah. 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 So, okay, uh, I actually have one more question that I would like to ask. Sure. Uh, so you mentioned that you've also done similar work in the context of Georgia and Russia. And uh, you know, we have researchers here at UW who study the impact on land use of the conflicts in the North Caucasus. Hey. Uh, I'm curious, do you see these examples that, you've, uh, that you're familiar with? Is there some common theme to post-Soviet uh, military conflicts and the uh, extent or the nature of environmental damage, or do you see them as just they're typical of, you know, other cases where military conflict has led to environmental destruction? Um, well, I, just, just to clarify, like my previous work did not really concern environment at all. It, it was oh, I see. Strategic, strategic litigation from the conflicts in Georgia and, 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 and Chechnya. Uh, and I, I worked on human rights defenders in, uh, or human rights lawyers uh, working in Russia on various cases. Um, but yeah, still to address your question, yeah. Um, I mean, these environmental concerns have not really played up that much in the conflicts in Georgia, the 2008 mm -hmm. conflict, and in Chechnya. 
um, no. Um, but of course, I mean, there's a there's a certain question of there's a certain element of the Soviet legacy. If you look at the conflict in in Eastern Ukraine with all this heavy industry, um, that is that is, was already not very well regulated, um, and that was probably going to be dismantled at some some point anyway. Uh, so yeah, that might be a an aspect of it. But I don't see similarities with 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 your your Chechnya at all. No. Mm-hmm. No. Yeah. So I, I was really struck by your by the you know the the finding where uh, the environment was already so badly polluted with chemicals as a result of the industrial legacy in Donbass that it's hard to discern yeah. an actual impact of uh, that. That's rather uh, chilling and disturbing finding, but in some ways yeah. maybe not altogether surprising. Yeah. Uh, well, okay. Do we have any other questions or comments? Uh, I, I have a question. Sure. Please. Um, yeah. Thank you very much uh, for your excellent uh, presentation. Very informative. Um, and um, I just wanted to clarify my previous understanding be- before your lecture was that one of the major environmental concerns as a result of the conflict in Eastern Ukraine was that mines were uh, abandoned. Um, and yeah. They- flooding um, and um, there was no um, regular mechanism of, of pumping um, mm-hmm. that and so that uh, what one of them that it leads to 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 um, water effects on and water and mm-hmm. it, it was my understanding right that it's one of the major concerns um, um, I, I didn't hear it as much in your presentation I was wondering um, yeah why you chose um to is um and um uh, that's the first one is there any political discussions or, or ngos discussion of addressing that one because it's something that they can aside from shame that's something that they could address and target um and it's while they can't stop the war um they could have some leverage of saying okay we can at least um do the pumping um, mm-hmm. that can prevent um, damage that right. can really grow with time. Um, yeah. And my side question, only if you have time, is um, did you notice that um, there's studies now that the growth of civil society in Ukraine after Maidan um, mm-hmm. and with the war that there are a lot more NGOs? Um, is that a fact? Um, did you notice that as well in this case that there are a lot more NGOs um, that deal with environment than they say they would have been five years ago or more than five years ago. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, just to jump into that, yeah, just to answer that first, that last question first. Um, uh, to be honest, I actually, I, I, don't, I don't know. Um, I, 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 at, at this moment, when we were mapping out all the NGOs working on this, they're not that many, mm-hmm. so I, I have, I mean, and I know that these NGOs have worked on other human rights issues mm-hmm. before, or that they were already, um, uh, some, some NGOs were, were uh, not necessarily only focused on the environment, but they worked on other issues as well, uh, related to the conflict or not. So, but yeah, that, that's, that, that may be something that would be good to, to check. Um, then uh, the mines. Uh, well, yeah, some of the, these mines were um, 
Yeah, it is one of the main problems because, um, well, there, there, there are a lot of mines in Eastern Ukraine um, and most of these mines are connected. I mean, the, the different, um, how do you call it? Uh, the mine shafts, they are connected. So one mine can, might be connected to another, another mine. So if one mine is flooded, then it might spread to another mine and to a bigger territory. So that's, what's, that's one of the major concerns of, of these NGOs that did might result into introduction of all kinds of new pollutants and, and polluted groundwater. Um, um, so yeah, some of these mines are that have to deal with kind of uh, power outages or yeah, that's stopped the ventilation system and the pumping. Um, but yeah, I mean, yeah, it's a good it's a good good question about that. That might be something that the NGOs or might might be focusing on and just just focusing on keeping the mines clean or um, getting the pumping going. Um, I don't know to what extent these NGOs are really have influence over the technical operations of these mines and how they can influence that. But that might be that might be an interesting aspect of it. Um, sorry, I think I'm I'm missing one of your questions, but no, no, you got it. Yeah, okay, thank you. All right. Uh, okay, so uh, are there any further questions or comments? We're just about out of time, but if there's one okay. more uh, question or comment, uh, well, seeing none, then uh, let me join the rest of the audience in thanking you once again for very you know very helpful and uh, dramatic presentation which gave us a lot of new information and uh, maybe although it's uh, not terribly uh, you didn't give us much reason for hope but uh, that's not your job no <laughs> um, so we really we really appreciate it uh, especially Thank you, you know, very much staying for up late to, to speak with us so okay so well then uh, thank you very much I wish thank you, you very much for inviting party. me it's a uh, been a pleasure and we'll we'll all be looking at your website, I'm sure. Okay. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. It was a pleasure to be here. Thanks. And thank you all who attended. <laughs>